Well, you can get in your Bibles there to the book of Ruth. We've been in the book of Ruth for several weeks now. Amazingly, uh, the book of Ruth does not begin with Ruth herself. It begins with Naomi and her family in the dark days of the book of Judges. And there's a famine in the land. And so Elimelech leads his family, including Naomi and his children, to leave the promised land and go to Moab, where they uh, quickly experience tragedy. Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion, the two boys, end up taking Moabite wives, and they live in the land for a number of years before they die. And now you have Naomi with just her daughters-in-law. And Orpah, as we know, goes back to the land of Moab, where she thinks she can find rest and security there, but not so with Ruth. She insists on submitting herself to the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true Lord, your God will be my God, she tells her mother-in-law, your people, my people. We said that's covenant language. That's Ruth bringing herself under the, the shadow, the wing of the Almighty. And she commits herself to Naomi. And we find her quickly acting for the good of her mother-in-law and going out and gleaning in the field. And the Lord providentially brings her and Boaz into the same field. And, you know, Naomi thinks, oh, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And if you haven't been with us throughout this series, we're going to take some time and we're going to stop and think about this idea of a redeemer, the law of leveret marriage. But but she kind of schemes a little bit to get Ruth and and Boaz together, and, and sort of, we said, uh, an unwise way, but the Lord uses even our foolish scheming and our foolish plans. And so Ruth meets with Boaz, and she essentially challenged Boaz to take up his role as a kinsman redeemer to her. She essentially proposed marriage to Boaz. And in chapter 3, we were left then on kind of a, a cliffhanger there. You know, you might expect that she says, marry me, and Boaz says, okay, and they live happily ever after. Not yet, right? There's, there's a complicating factor there that Boaz, as a man of character, a worthy man, the text says, he needs to handle this according to the scriptures. So we were left wondering, how will this turn out? Will the other man pick up his responsibility and, and marry Ruth and redeem the land? And we see our resolution in, in chapter 4. You know, I would really had hoped to make it all the way through chapter 4, but I, I've been saying throughout this whole series, you know, we'll stop and we'll spend time on this kinsman redeemer, and then I'd get to the next chapter and say, you know, we'll stop and we'll really spend some time on this kinsman redeemer. And so it, it's really now or never. So I think what we'll do is, is make it through the first 12 verses today, and, and then we'll, we will wrap up the book of Ruth um, here in a couple weeks. You know, that word redeemer, or the verb there, to redeem, it shows up 13 times in just the first eight verses of chapter 4. So it's a good place for us. If we're going to stop and talk about a kinsman redeemer, this is the place. We've seen throughout the book of Ruth that that God is a faithful, faithful God. He He is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his people despite personal cost to himself. He is steadfast in his love towards his people. And so we see that, that he's faithful here 
in providing a kinsman redeemer. Look there in the first couple of verses. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. In the first couple verses, Boaz, really what he's doing is he's calling court into session. Okay, in, in an Israelite city that was large enough to have a city gate, the gate would serve as a, a couple different purposes. It could serve a defensive purpose where they would oftentimes have guards at the gate to guard people from coming in that they don't want in. But there was another purpose that got used likely more often and that's what we see in our text. The city gate would become a gathering place for the people of the city. And more than that, not only a gathering place, it became the place where official business would happen. So in that sense, it's almost like our courthouse. You know, if you need to go sign some documents, you may need to go to the courthouse to make that happen. So this is official business that Boaz has come to sort out. He's engaging in a legal matter here. And by him sitting down at the city gate, he's indicating that I have come to handle some formal legal business here. And as he sits down, guess who shows up? The man who he is looking for. You know, we've, we've, we've become accustomed to, in the book of Ruth, the author sort of indicating to us that this is, this is a, a bit of a surprise. Behold. You see that word behold there in, in your text. Behold. Look, look who just came by. The very man that Boaz was looking for. In fact, it reminds us of chapter 2 where Ruth just so happened to show up at the field of Boaz. Boaz goes to the city gate and look who just so happens to show up. Of course, the man he was looking for is what's called the nearer redeemer. If you remember from chapter 3, Ruth really surprised Boaz. Behold, there's another surprise. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. That was a surprise. But from chapter 3, she proposed, and there's this complicating factor of a nearer. We might say that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, but the kinsman redeemer, the nearer relative who should take up his responsibility, Boaz knows, I need to go talk to this man first. He actually has the responsibility to take care of Ruth and to pass on the line of uh, Elimelech and Malon. So we've explained this law of leveret marriage a couple times. And although that, that may sound like it's referring to the tribe of Levi, that term leveret marriage actually is more from the Latin, meaning brother-in-law. And we've summarized it a few times, but we said we'd slow down and, and think hard about this. So if you have your Bible and you don't mind flipping around in the pages, uh, look at Deuteronomy 25 for a moment. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty 
of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. It's public humiliation for not taking up his obligation. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So notice a couple things from Deuteronomy chapter 25. First, and we've mentioned this a couple times as we've been in the book of Ruth, but the purpose of the law was to raise up a son in the place of the dead brother to perpetuate his name in Israel. You know, in, in Ruth, what we see in, in practice, this seemed to be expanded beyond just Brothers, there was an expectation that even a near relative would step in and take care of this widow. And this, the, the son that was born of this new leveret marriage, he would be the one to inherit the, the, the land. So now, not only does the name pass down, but the land passes down. We'll look in Genesis 12 in a moment and see why that was such an important thing for the life of Israel as part of the Abrahamic covenant and uh, provision for that, even in the Mosaic covenant. So this, this was God's way of being faithful to his people and faithful to his covenant. So the purpose of the law was to have an heir so the land stays in the family and the genealogy can continue on. Notice also that um, according to Deuteronomy 25 and and I just sort of jumped the gun a little bit, but this was the brother's responsibility. But it seems to be in practice that this expanded to the nearest relative. And what we find in Boaz is not a legalistic, pharisaical spirit nitpicking the letter of the law and saying, I don't have to take up my responsibility here. Instead, we find in Boaz a love for God and a willingness to obey the spirit of the law and say, you know what, I'm not a brother here, but I will take up my role as a kinsman redeemer. And then notice also from Deuteronomy 25 that, that the brother ought to take up his responsibility, but he could choose not to fulfill his obligation. You know, I have in my notes, insert all kinds of funny sister-in-law jokes here, but all, all passed, all passed. It was, it was something that he should do. It was disgraceful for him not to do it, but it wasn't compulsory. There was provisional law for shaming a man who did not take up his responsibility and did not fulfill his obligations, but he could refuse, and we see that even in the book of Ruth. So then you say, okay, you keep talking about this law of leveret marriage, but the, the tax keeps talking about a redeemer, and you keep mentioning a kinsman redeemer. Well, there are actually two uh, distinct laws that are treated very, very close together in 
the book of Ruth. The law of leveret marriage seems to fall under this broader category of the kinsman redeemer. So what's a kinsman redeemer? Well, according to the Mosaic law, there are three duties that a kinsman redeemer could fulfill if he was able. In Leviticus 25, we see, we see a couple of those. Again, you can flip if you'd like. Um, you don't have to. You know, if you've been reading through the Bible plan that we distributed, you might have just made it through Leviticus 25, or you may be close. But in verse 25 there, if a man falls into financial distress and has to sell a portion of his land or all of his land just to make ends meet, then his brother could come along and redeem the land. He could buy back the land so the land remains in the family there. Also, if, if that doesn't provide enough funds and, and this man maybe, maybe he squanders it, maybe not, maybe he just runs out of money again even after mortgaging his property and he is so destitute that he must sell himself into slavery, then his kinsman redeemer can come along and he can purchase the freedom of his brother. And of course, he would have to have the means to do that. Um, to come redeem his brother. Now, it's beyond the point of this passage to, to sort of dive into slavery and all the implications there, but for, for today, we'll, just, we'll leave it at that and just say that a, a, a close relative could redeem his brother. In fact, even, even if, if a servant or slave got his own money together, he could redeem himself. Now, a third responsibility of the kinsman redeemer is not there in Leviticus chapter 25. It's actually found in, in Numbers 35. And that was the role of vengeance. When a relative is murdered or a brother is murdered, a kinsman redeemer, he became the avenger of blood. Really, it's the redeemer of blood. So in, the, in this Old Covenant, he became the instrument of God's righteousness and justice, exacting judgment on the man who murdered someone in his family. Now, we are not under the Old Covenant. We aren't responsible to exact our own vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord. He has actually put the sword in the sword of vengeance, the sword of justice, into the hands of the government to execute justice. And so we are called then to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, just in case anyone was wondering. So this, this, that's the kinsman redeemer and the law of lever marriage. Again, they're distinct, but they, they work very, very closely together, especially the way we see it play out in the book of Ruth. So the nearest, here comes the nearest kinsman redeemer, the man who should redeem the land, and he should redeem Ruth. He should marry her and propagate the line of of this family. You know, what's interesting is the name of this man, I keep calling him the man, because we don't know his name in the text. You know, the ESV translates it friend. You know, it, it, but it's not like a friendly, it's more like when somebody calls you buddy. You're like, don't call me that, all right? Or like, hey guy, come over here. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not guy. I'm not your buddy. All right, it's sort of a, a way to keep this man who refuses to take up his responsibility anonymous. 
It's sort of like we said with Orpah. She walks away from the promised land and walks out of the pages of Scripture. This man remains anonymous as someone who refused to fulfill his covenant obligations, and so he remains anonymous. So here's the guy. Behold, he just so happened to show up, and then Boaz grabs ten other men of the city. These are, these are elders, and, and again, it's just this is like uh, courtroom terminology here. He's gathering witnesses. What happens, what follows, will be legally binding in nature. And these witnesses will be there to confirm what transpires at the city gate. And so these men, the ten, Boaz seeks them out. They're elders of the city. They're responsible for much of the administration and leadership within the city. And then Boaz gets into his reason for calling the kinsman redeemer or grabbing him, turn aside in here, come over here, interrupt your day, I need you for a minute, and gathering these ten elders. Look in verses uh, 3 through 8. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, but buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair, in my, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So we see Boaz now getting down to the official business with the, the kinsman redeemer, the ten elders gathered. He can lay out the nature of this meeting. You know, we might assume that Boaz would jump right to Ruth. I mean, chapter 3, it ended with him and Ruth. He says, I'll go find the kinsman redeemer. I will deal with it in the morning. But he sort of surprises us in talking about the land first and really talking about Naomi first. So we... we can kind of put together the pieces of the puzzle here that Naomi, a widow who has no real way to provide for herself, has to find a way to make ends meet. She's taken the necessary steps to try to sell the land that was in the family there so that she can, again, you can sell the land, get the money, and you know, hope somebody can maybe redeem you at some point. You know, land, as I said, was... It's valuable in our culture, right? It's valuable in the Black Hills, especially these days. Some of you guys have come here and bought land, and you, you, you know that it's, it's valuable. But it's hard for us to really grasp the significance of land to Israel inside of the promised land. And so we have to think about this, this covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord promised Land, go to the land to which I will show you. He promised them seed or, or many descendants. 
And he promised blessing to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And then eventually, through these descendants would come one who would bless all the nations. And so in Genesis 15, then, God unilaterally binds himself to the covenant that he has made with Abraham and to the descendants of Abraham. You see, when they would ratify a covenant back in Genesis, they would take a certain number of animals, and they would cut them in half, and they would line these animals up, and then some of the birds were maybe too small. They didn't cut the birds in half. But, but then the two parties would walk through this this line of, of animals, and it was a way of ratifying the covenant that God uh, that was made between two parties. It, it was as if to say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. If I break this covenant, may I end up like these animals here. Well, in Genesis 15, the animals are prepared, they're lined up, and then a deep sleep falls over Abram, Abraham, and God himself passes through the midst of those animals, again, unilaterally binding himself to this covenant that he has made. And this is, this is Hesed. He, is, he has promised this, he, and he remains faithful to the promise that he has made. And so the land being given to Israel was part of God's way of of promising and keeping his promise of land. And then we see that the leveret marriage was part of his keeping his promise of descendants. So in Genesis 15, God is swearing upon his own name that he will not break the covenant which he has made. And so the kinsman redeemer and the leveret marriage are ways that God demonstrates his hesed, his faithfulness to this covenant, land and descendants and blessing. So Boaz then begins by asking this anonymous man, will you redeem the land? Will you buy the land? Don't let Naomi sell this land to a stranger to where it falls into the hands of someone else. Now God had other provisions in place like the year of Jubilee, if this, if this happened. But don't, don't let that happen. Will you redeem this land? And like a punch in the gut, if you didn't know the end of the story, he says, I will. Because we, we kind of know, right? We know that Ruth is sort of wrapped up in this deal. And he says, I will. And we're like, what? That's not what I expected. We're, we're sort of left wondering, what, what in the world? This is, this is the worst ending to a great story I've ever Red, all of a sudden this guy with no name is going to marry Boaz's girl. He, 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 he cares for her. He loves her. He wants to act for her good. And so um, you can see his response there in verse 5. We read it just a few minutes ago. But let's look at verse 5 again. You see Boaz's response. He has a trick up his sleeve. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, um, the widow of the dead. And in order to, now this is what we just talked about, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz, you know, I, I, if it were me, I'd be sarcastic and say, well, there's one thing I forgot to mention, right? I don't know that Boaz is sarcastic, but he says, if you, re if you redeem the field, you're responsible to redeem Ruth, the Moabite. 
And this will allow the name of the dead to be perpetuated and and the inheritance of the land to stay within the family line. And so this this surprises the man. Um, He didn't know that Ruth was part of the equation. And so he says he's unable to redeem the land because it might actually imperil his own inheritance. And so that shows us then that this man is not acting for the good of his neighbor. He's not acting for the good of Ruth or Naomi, he's worried about his own inheritance. He's selfishly motivated. He isn't trying to be used by the Lord to perpetuate the name of this family in Israel, of his own relatives. He, he was seeking to gain something for himself. Before he heard about Ruth, he, he's likely thinking, you know, it's just Naomi. She's too old to have babies, so if I get the land, all i got to do is take care of Naomi for a little bit longer until she's off the scene, and then the land is all mine. Of course, again, God had provision to protect the land. But So before you heard about Ruth, he thought that he could use this land and he could benefit off this land, and all he'd have to do is take care of Naomi. But when Ruth is added to the equation, there's a complicating factor for this selfishly motivated man. It throws a scheme into disarray. With Ruth, the land wouldn't remain with him. It would pass on to the descendants of Ruth. If Ruth would have a son, the son would inherit the land. And now all of a sudden, he's spending money on Naomi, and he's spending money on Ruth, and the land's going to go to this kid that I have to have. So he's He's not taking responsibility. He's sort of doing the math in his own mind and saying, it's not worth it. He, he actually demonstrates the opposite of hesed, covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord. We said that the defining characteristic of this, this hesed, this covenant faithfulness, this steadfast love, is to act for the good of another despite the personal cost to yourself. And he refuses to act because it's going to cost him too much. So Boaz is likely relieved. I'm glad Ruth wasn't there. She would have been a nervous wreck, I'm sure. So they close the deal in verses 7 and 8. You know, and I like that the narrator sort of interjects here, and he's like, he knows it's going to be weird for us to hear later on down the road. So he's like, you know, this is what they did. This is how they, they transacted a deal. So what's about to happen? It's really foreign to you, but this was the custom of sort of sealing the deal on a legal transaction in Israel. You know, this this taking off the sandal, exchanging the sandal, would be like us going to the titling agency and signing 10,000 papers and shaking hands at the end of the day. You know, that's, that's the formality. That's what it is. And so... They seal the deal here. The the closer man, the man that should have taken up his responsibility, he takes off his sandal and he hands it, presumably, to Boaz. The text just says he took it off, but the idea is that he would hand it to Boaz. And this symbolizes the man's abdication of his responsibility. We read about it in uh, Deuteronomy 25, that this man would be known as the man who did not take up his responsibility. Now, interestingly, he's not publicly shamed, the way that Deuteronomy 25 mentioned, and it's, it's likely because he's not a brother. He's sort of a, probably a further relative than a brother. And so he, he could say no here. He should have said yes, but he could say no. And so like 
Orpah that we mentioned walked out of the pages of Scripture, this man disappears from the narrative as the man who did not take up his responsibility, even though he wasn't publicly shamed for not taking it up. And so then we see Boaz's response and these blessings that are pronounced over the different individuals in our text. So with the legal matter settled, look there in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of the native place. That's the whole purpose of the law. He wants to fulfill the law. Um... You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." So Boaz addresses the ten elders there, and apparently a crowd is gathered. There's others that are now there, others who are there to witness this. And they become witnesses to these legal proceedings. The estate has been transferred to Boaz. He will marry Ruth in order to do what the law said was the purpose, to perpetuate the name of the deceased relative. And so it appears then... You know, if we are able to sort of slightly let this anonymous man off the hook and say, well, he wasn't a brother, that's why nobody like publicly shamed him. If we sort of let him off the hook a little bit, then we have to point out that then Boaz is going above and beyond the call of duty as a, as a further away relative to take care of his responsibilities, even though he was further removed. And so apparently the crowd is gathered to watch the proceedings, and um, Boaz addresses them, and then they bless Ruth, they bless Boaz, and then they bless the household. To Ruth, they ask that the Lord may, may be kind to her like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. Now we've got to kind of fly a little bit here, but if you remember, Rachel and Leah were sisters. Jacob fell in love with Rachel. Her parents, or their parents, Laban, agreed that if he worked for seven years, he could marry Rachel. And then after the seven years, he sort of tricks him and ends up marrying Leah. And, and you know, if you're, if you're a romantic, you know, there's one of those great lines in the Bible that those seven years seemed like they were nothing because of his great love for Rachel. And he woke up in the morning and he'd married Leah. And he had to work for seven more years, but these two ladies would become, uh, along with, unfortunately, some of their maidservants, but these two ladies would become the, the mothers then of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's amazing then that the crowd would pronounce this blessing on Ruth. May Ruth the Moabite be blessed like the matriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it indicates that she's become a part of this covenant community. 
And she has, she has indeed come under the wing of the Almighty. She has indeed made Naomi's people her people. And so also the mention of, of Rachel matters because she struggled with barrenness. It says, like Rachel, you know, you, you may remember that Ruth was married for a decade and never had a son. So it's like Rachel, the blessing is like Rachel, may her barrenness to this point, be reversed, and maybe may she be found to be fruitful in Israel. So they bless her to Boaz. They ask that he might act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem. This would just be consistent with his character. Of course, the crowd would have no idea how renowned Boaz would come as he would be in the line of King David, who would be born in the city of Bethlehem. And on Boaz's household, they, they offer an odd request uh, that she'd be blessed like Tamar and Perez. Well, Tamar shows up in Genesis 38. That's actually, we see, like the law of leveret marriage. It, it doesn't work there. But we see the law of leveret marriage. Tamar jumps the gun because one brother refuses to take up his responsibility. And she doesn't want to wait for the other brother. As, so Tamar tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into conceiving a child. It's just wicked, wicked stuff all around. But she, you know, everything in the, the Bible records things that happen. It's not always a stamp of endorsement. You know, I have a friend that he got his mom to start reading the Bible, and she said, are you sure? It's like, she got the lot and his daughters. She's like, are you sure about this book? He's like, oh, just because it happened doesn't mean it was like righteous, okay? It's wicked, wicked stuff. But it shows that God weaves blessing out of sin and disaster and wickedness. His purposes prevail despite the wickedness of man. And so the comparison here isn't between Tamar and Ruth in terms of their character. May she be like uh, Tamar in this way, or may she gain children in a really deceitful and disgusting way. It seems to be an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if, Lord, if, if you use Tamar to bring about Perez, who, you know, and, and extended the line of Judah, which would include these people gathered here, if you use that, would you bless this man Boaz and Ruth the faithful Moabite? And with that, Boaz takes his wife in verse 13. And so we, we see this beautiful romance. The woman from Moab has found rest and peace, not only in the God of Israel, but rest and peace in the arms of a loving husband, something that Naomi had prayed for and had been alluded to throughout the book of Ruth. And the worthy man, Boaz, has obeyed the Lord and at personal cost to himself gained a wife, as well as a mother-in-law, and he once again demonstrates his covenant faithfulness and steadfast love to Ruth and Naomi. He will redeem the land. He will walk in godliness, imitating the Lord who redeemed his people from Israel. He's imitating his Lord. He's being faithful to the Lord here. Ultimately, Boaz not only reminds us of, 
of sort of the redemption that God worked in Israel for his people in freeing them from the slavery of Egypt. But Boaz reminds us of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would become for us a kinsman redeemer. Look in, look in Hebrews 2 for a moment. This is why I didn't try to preach the whole chapter, because I'm already low on time. Remember some of the truths that we learned about the kinsman redeemer. First, we saw that he must be a brother. Or we said the way it was in practice, a close relative. He was to be someone who was part of the family. I think the author of Hebrews, he seems to be alluding to this in, in, chap, in chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood. He himself, or, or if you jump down to verse 17... Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. See, we know, we, we, we know and we understand that Jesus is eternal. And prior to the incarnation, he existed as the Father, as, as Spirit. He was invisible. But in coming to earth, he partook of the same things as the son of, sons of man, us. He took on flesh and blood. He had to be made like a brother in order to redeem his brothers, so that he could be a savior for sinful people like us. The kinsman redeemer had to be a close relative. The kinsman redeemer, as we read in Leviticus 25, could purchase a brother from slavery. Now, we, there's no slavery in the book of Ruth, but it was sell your land, and if that doesn't work, sell yourself into slavery. Okay, so he Boaz intervened before it got to the point of slavery. We saw this in, in Leviticus. If a man became poor, he would sell himself into slavery, and he needed a brother to come purchase his salvation. And if you're still there in the book of Hebrews, look at why Jesus took on flesh and blood. It's there at the end of verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through Fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the power of death reigns over humanity. In our sin, in our transgression of God's law, we are subject to the penalty of death. It's the, the penalty of sin from Adam on is this penalty of death, for the wages of sin is death. That is to say that in our sin, we have so sinned against an infinitely righteous God that the penalty of death is not only physical death that we all experience, but it's what the Bible calls eternal death as well. Outside of Christ, we will all spend eternity experiencing only God's wrath and justice and penalty for our sin. That's, that's the lot of all those who are outside of Christ. And therefore, the text says we are slaves to this, this fear of death. We are actually helpless to redeem ourselves from this slavery to sin and this slavery to sin's penalty, which is death. We were like Ruth, who expressed her helplessness. In chapter 3, verse 9, when she asked Boaz, spread your wings over your servant, for you are to me a redeemer. 
See, we don't have recourse in and of ourselves to fix this problem. So what do we do? We tend, to, we tend to just sort of push death out of our minds. We tend to deny the reality of death. We, we ignore its impending reality for every single one of us. But Christ, our kinsman redeemer, has redeemed us from the slavery of death. He has removed the penalty of sin. And he has set us free from the enslavement to death and the penalty of sin. And as we speak about then the, the, the cost of our salvation, we're reminded then that also the kinsman redeemer, he had to be able to pay the price. That's what it said in Leviticus 25. If you're enslaved and your brother has enough money to buy you, he can. A kinsman redeemer had to have enough money to pay the price or the ability to make the payment that was owed. You see, the anonymous man, he refused because it was going to cost him too much. The, the, the price was not worth what he would have to, to give up. The cost was too high. What do, what do we see the cost there in Hebrews chapter 2? It's through death. It's through death that the power of death is overthrown. Christ was willing to come to this earth and not only become a brother to us, but to give up his own life on that cross to suffer in our place because death only dies in Jesus' death. It was the only way for us to be set free from this penalty. So at great personal cost, with great covenant faithfulness to his people, Jesus laid down his life. This is his steadfast love. This is his hesed. This is his faithfulness to his people. In his death, he has become our substitute. He has made propitiation for us there in verse 17. He has taken the penalty of death on himself so that we might be set free from that and that we might receive life, indeed eternal life. We might be credited with the righteousness of God and stand before him one day righteous, not clothed in our own good works, but clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as our sin was credited to his account. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, speaking of this cost, says, knowing that you were ransomed from the, that's purchased, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Well, what was the cost? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. It with his own death. Also, the kinsman redeemer must be willing then to take up his role. He not only has to have the ability to, pl- to pay, but he has to be willing to take up his role. We saw in Ruth, we saw in Deuteronomy that it's possible for a brother to say, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Humiliate me all you want. I'm not going to take up my responsibility. But Christ has willingly taken up his role as Savior of his people. He's not ashamed to call us brothers in Hebrews chapter 2 because we share the same Father. He has laid his life down for the sheep. John chapter 10, verse 15. You see, no one takes his life from him, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. He willingly went to that cross. And like Boaz demonstrated his worthy character and freely taking up his role as the kinsman redeemer, so Christ, in a much more costly way, has demonstrated his supreme worth, 
His supreme worth in laying down his life for our sins. So we'll end with this one. The kinsman redeemer would marry his bride. The kinsman redeemer would marry his bride. It's interesting there in verse 11, if you're you're back in Ruth. In verse 11, Ruth is described by the elders as that woman who is coming into the house of Boaz. That woman who is coming into your house. You see, in ancient Israel, the wedding party would, would march Towards the home of the groom, there would be this processional as they're, they're marching, and sort of the end of the ceremony would be the groom taking his new bride into his home. And so this woman is coming into the home of Boaz. And as we think about that, in light of the work of Christ, and in light of the fact that the church is the bride of Christ, whom Christ has made perfect and spotless through his sacrifice. He has won the church through his work, won his bride to himself. And it is as if we are on the path, on the processional, walking and awaiting that day when we are welcomed, when we are with Christ in his presence forever. You know, the book of 1 Thessalonians says, we, therefore, we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. We will always be with the Lord. You know, if you have found beauty and glory in the story of Boaz, or if your heart sort of flutters as you hear that line about uh, Jacob and Rachel, and it, you know, the time flew because he loved her so much, just we should know that these are just the smallest shadows, the smallest shadows of the incredible love and faithfulness of our God seen through Jesus Christ and applied to us through the work of His Holy Spirit. And what a Savior, what a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are reminded of our own inability to redeem ourselves. Yet in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Through His death, through His blood, Lord, today may may you lift up our hearts to worship and to be thankful for the work that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.